You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. We have a big week this week. Thanksgiving is just around the corner. Am I right? Uh, this is a very special time for, for me as well because I actually proposed to my wife on Thanksgiving. So, yeah, that, that's coming up. And with Thanksgiving and, and fall comes the cold weather. And uh, how many of you enjoy the 60-degree temperatures we've been having? Good. Yeah, it doesn't feel like fall. That's how fall should feel. But we're back to reality, back to 40s and 30s and so on. So we can say that uh, bad things happen, wars, calamities, and bad people seem to prosper. That's what we can observe around the world. We see the uh, atrocities that are occurring in, uh, in the Middle East. Um, and it makes us wonder. We have corrupt politicians, evil people doing really well for themselves. Um, and that causes us to ask the question, does God care? Will we ever see the just prevail? What's going on in, with this fallen world? We oftentimes, um, we like to see instant karma. And I'm going to like kind of phrase that. Karma is this idea of like the universe. If you do good things, you put it out in the universe, the universe will give you good things. But that's really impersonal. That's not what the Bible teaches per se. Um, the Bible teaches um, this, this spiritual law. Uh, it's found in Galatians 6-7. I'm going to touch on that a little bit later. But it's basically you reap what you sow. Do not be deceived. And that really goes really hand-in-hand with the story of Haman and what's going to be happening in this chapter as well. Um, We like to see when the wicked get what they deserve. And we can look at, at even in our lives, right? If If someone cuts you off and there's a police officer right there to see him and turn his lights on, we feel good. We're like, yes, gotcha, buddy. Um... And in the same way, the interesting thing is the Bible holds up uh, these stories. Uh, For example, Haman. We saw in chapter 7 that this man, Haman, the main villain, the antagonist of the story, basically he was sowing destruction. He was trying to kill a man on some gallows and then kill all the Jews And we see that he got what he deserved. He basically was hung up on his own gallows. And in the same way, Daniel and the lion's den. When uh, the enemies of Daniel threw him in the lion's den, essentially, and Daniel survived. The next morning, they were thrown into the lion's den as well. So the wicked get what they deserve. We applaud. We feel good about it. And um, the idea is that we wait on the Lord. That's a test. Are we willing to wait on the Lord for him to sort all this out, all the wickedness, calamity, and evil in this world? Psalm thirty-seven, thirty-four: Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. So that's the exact thing that happened with Haman. They waited on the Lord, the wicked was cut off, And they were the ones who inherited. They were the ones who had favor in the kingdom. 
And the theme of the chapter is wait on the Lord and watch as the wicked are cut off and the humble are exalted. And just keep that in mind because that's exactly what happens at the end of the chapter. The humble will be exalted. So that being said, um, if we could just bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to be here um, in your presence. I pray a blessing over the congregation. I pray that you would um, just still our minds, still our hearts, that we would forget about the cares and troubles of this world, and at least for this short time, to just focus on your word, uh, to, to sit at your feet and to learn from you, Father. I pray that you would just uh, anoint this sermon um, with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would make it real to us, that we would take away, that we would retain the information, um, and that you would just use it for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay. Um, without going into the first couple of verses, or before I do that, just to kind of recap real quick, um, not to spend too much time on it, but in chapter 7, we see that uh, Esther finally uh, was at the banquet, and she called out Haman for trying to destroy her and her people. And this is where the drama kind of really accelerates. And we see that the king, in his anger, basically coming and seeing Haman falling on the couch where Esther was, he's like, whoa, are you going to assault my wife? Which could have been an excuse of, okay, off with his head. And uh, the eunuchs knew what was going to happen. They took the bag, put it over his head, and took him out to the very gallows, 75 feet high, waiting for Haman, or uh, I'm sorry, waiting for Mordecai to be hung on. Uh, Haman was hung on those very gallows. So the question that Raz proposed last week was, so what? Did this solve the problem? And the answer is yes and no. Uh, in the large scheme of things, it didn't solve anything because the decree that Haman had put out is still going forth and, and uh, the people were still going to rise up uh, against the Jews to kill them, to cut them off as a people. So in that sense, the decree is still live and it did nothing. But in another sense, the man who proposed these plans in his mind and really was the leader of the decree. He was the one who thought of it. He was the one who executed it. Uh, he was the one who offered up money. He's gone. And that's still, at the same time, pretty big. Because when a leader gets cut off, the body kind of doesn't know what to do. There's no leadership anymore. And that really sets up the whole thing. So with that being said, let's uh, look at verses 1 to 2 and see what we can glean from there. On that day, so the same day, uh, that Haman was killed. King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So what we see here, uh, and really, the, just as a side note, the, uh, the chapters are like man-made, uh, the chapters and verses. So this was read as like a, a whole narrative. So just kind of keep that in mind. It would be really nice to flow from chapter 7 to chapter 8. We took a break, so we, we have a break from 7 to 8. But basically, when in, in the same time period, the king got new information 
And it caused the king to act on this new information. This is known as a paradigm shift. It's new information that causes a radical change to your worldview. And uh, the best way I could illustrate it is, um, just to kind of make it real, is uh, there was a, a man, a blind man, that walked onto a bus, and someone got up to give him the seat to the blind man. How many of you think that was a good thing? Raise your hand. Right? Sounds good. How many of you think it was a bad thing? Nobody. Good. <laughs> no cynical people. Actually, that is actually a really bad thing because of the new information. Because uh, the person who stood up to give up the seat to the blind man was the bus driver. So you see how the new information can totally change uh, your worldview, and, and now you have a real perspective. And that's exactly like if you were to ask King Ahasuerus, hey, are you planning on killing your friend Haman over here today? He'd probably say, no, no way, what are you talking about? But as soon as you give him the new information, oh, okay, this is what he's really up to. Then it totally changes the narrative. Uh, we, we find that a lot in Scripture. We see it in Acts, where this is a really big moment for the Apostle Paul. In Acts 9, 3-6, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So this is a, a man that was an enemy of Christians, a Pharisee of Pharisees, his zealous for the Lord, but without knowledge, wanting to murder Christians and take them before judgment. And when he had the new information presented before his eyes, his whole worldview changed. And that could be the same, the same could be said about us. Have you experienced that type of paradigm shift in your life? The ultimate paradigm shift is one in relation to reality. Uh, the existence of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This alters your eternal destiny. Being born again is a paradigm shift in a way, a new creation, a new worldview, new eyes for eternity. Uh, let's see how Romans 10 says it. <clears throat> Romans 10, 14 to 15. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So this is the idea that, that we are ambassadors of Christ. And in the same manner, we are to share the gospel. And this new information may cause some people to change their worldview completely. And that worldview is empowered by the Holy Spirit that makes it real to us. And it's the information of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's free and open to all people, to anyone um, it's right there. There's evidence for it. It's not a leap in the dark. It's, it's a historical fact. And uh, some people choose to believe and have their whole worldview altered while others choose not to believe. And in like manner, we see that the king had his worldview altered and he acted upon it. He acted upon it by killing Haman. Moving on to verses 3 to 6. 
Esther identifies herself with her people. So this is the first time Esther steps out on a limb and calls herself a Jew. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamada, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? So we see here that Esther humbles herself before the king. And if you think about it, she could have come with her nose up in the air as a queen, as a royal. They have that type of dignity. But instead, she more comes to him as like a subject, as someone that is submissive, <clears throat> which is in stark contract to queen, uh, contrast to Queen Vashti, who came and said no. And, and to her credit, like when, when she was asked to come in and uh, parade herself, perhaps without any clothes on, in front of uh, the king's drunk friends, she said no. Yet Esther, she humbled herself. And she also, in the passage, identifies herself with God's people, which, by the way, are condemned by an earthly decree. So instead of her, and if you think about it, could she have just denied her Jewish heritage? In the previous chapters, Mordecai said, hey, don't think that you're going to escape this. But it makes someone wonder, what if she would have doubled down on her trying to escape by saying, hey, let me deny my identity altogether, and whatever happens to the Jews will happen to the Jews. She could have really doubled down on that, but instead, she identifies herself with her people, and she takes great risk to her life by asking this request of the king. <clears throat> Likewise, as we've seen in the, in the first section, the idea of a new birth in the paradigm shift this kind of brings to mind that we identify with Christ in baptism. Romans 6, 3-4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And if you also think about it, not only do we identify ourselves with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection at the point of baptism, but Christ also identifies himself with us in our suffering. If you remember the passage that I read earlier in Acts, uh, where Paul meets the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, Jesus didn't ask, why are you persecuting the church? He asks very intimately, why are you persecuting me? And this is to say that Jesus is so intimate with his church that he identifies himself with the church and we identify ourselves with him. It's such a beautiful relationship and it's very encouraging. Not only that, but Jesus can also identify himself with our weaknesses, if you ever think about that. Hebrews 4.15 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this is such an amazing thing, that the struggles of our lives, the, the, the sins that we might fall into, we have such a perfect example of the God-man who is without sin, that we can emulate, and that, that's what it means to idolize something. We want to be made more into the image of Christ, just like any idolater wants to be made more into the image of their God. And it kind of reminds me of uh, like some young girl that's really obsessed with Ariana Grande, right? So she has like Ariana Grande all over her walls, pictures and, and so on. And she wants to look like her. She wants to talk like her. She wants to sing like her. And she identifies herself with her. And likewise, us as believers, we, we have the person of Jesus Christ. We have the scriptures. We read more into it. And we want to identify and look more and more like Christ. Furthermore, Esther wants her people to be saved. This is what she's asking of the king. Just because Haman is gone does not mean her problem is over, as we previously stated. Her concern is no longer with herself, but extends to others in peril. She is willing to risk her life for the sake of others, yet she is still human, emotional, fearful, in weakness. Do you want others to be saved? That's a great question. 1 Corinthians 2 Verses 1 to 3. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. So that's a very interesting connection with Esther. Um, whether, and I'm not sure if it's in this chapter or seven, but when she came before the king, she was weeping and pleading with, with, with the king for the people. And believe me, it was with much fear and trembling. If sharing your faith is scary, then you are in good company with the Apostle Paul. The question is, does your love for the, for the person or persons drive out your fear? Because we read that perfect love casts out fear. And there's an illustration to go along with that. And it was um, of, a, of a pastor, a five-foot-five pastor, uh, who was speaking to a very angry gentleman, huge guy. And uh, when the guy got upset, the wife was, by the way, in the corner, looking as fearfully as all, this, all these things transpired. And the guy got to a boiling point and raised his fist up. And the woman, who was fearful, smaller than that pastor, ran up and said, "'Don't you touch my husband!' And to that, the man kind of like, okay, he put his fist down in shame and walked away. And really, that's such an illustration of that perfect love that she had for her husband drove out her fear. And she was able to step in, even though she was smaller than both of the men. And likewise, the love that Esther had for her people drove out her fear, and she was able to plead with the king for their lives, and not just for herself. The king grants her petition, verses 7 to 8. It reads as follows. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, 
in the name of the king and seal it with the king's signet ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And this uh, is according to the law of the Medes and Persians, that once a law is written, it cannot be revoked. Um, so there was a, the earlier edict of Haman. Um, the king restates what he did to Haman. And if you recall, there's that, that principle of you reap what you sow. Oh, we didn't want to call it karma. But Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Haman sowed a man's destruction, and he reaped, a man, and he reaped his own destruction. The interesting thing is, it wasn't just his own, but it's also extended in chapter 9 to his family. Very, very sad what going after people's destruction brings into your life. The other interesting thing that happened, which kind of is illustrated by Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. And isn't that interesting that the king gave the house of Haman to Esther. Esther later gives it to Mordecai. So we see here that this man stored up for himself treasure on earth, and because of his evil, it was given to the righteous. It sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, um, which can be stolen. Haman stored up for himself earthly treasure and sought his own kingdom by being paraded in front of people, by, by wanting to be worshipped by other people. And uh, in the end, it brought his own destruction. Uh, the king does grant authority to Esther uh, with the signet ring and to write a new decree in the name of the king to save her people. So now the resolution is taking place where first Haman was killed and now the king is addressing the decree, the, the, the final problem that they have. That brings to mind a question. What would you ask a king? Hmm. Hebrews 4.16 tells us to uh, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. We can approach a king. Uh, he is the king of the universe. And uh, how sad is it when we ignore this privilege? But if you think about it, that we have a greater king who sits on a throne, who is omnipotent, who knows us, who identifies himself with us, and we identify ourselves with him. And not only that, but the Son of God also is praying on our behalf as well. So we have everything going for us in our corner, and we can boldly approach his throne. Instead, and, and it's very uh, contrasted by Esther with her fear and trembling and not sure and the king hadn't seen her for 30 days, hoping that he holds out the scepter, hoping she doesn't die. No, we don't have to go through any of that. We can simply approach him based on the blood of his son. Moving on. So this is the action that takes place. Um, I've kind of listed it as damnation is first, grace is second, or two decrees. Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time 
in the third month, which is the month Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces, King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, a copy of what was written uh, was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all people. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the, the couriers mounted on swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out, hurried, urged by the king's command, and a decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Wow. So once again, we have this evil decree of destruction via Haman. And now we see the re resolution. Esther has authority now to reverse the edict by giving a new edict. So both of them are there, and both of them are in effect. The Jews' destruction and the Jews' ability to defend themselves. And that's the good news. Not only to defend themselves, but also to plunder their enemies. And the good news is written in every language. The good news, if we read in two times, it says, by swift horses. Swift uh, horses. And also, the, uh, at this point right now, there's about eight to ten months remaining before Haman's edict would be carried out. So the Jews have plenty of time to prepare and plenty of time for the message to get out to the people so they can make the preparations. The good news spread faster than the bad news. There was an emphasis to get the good news out, that emphasis of swiftness, carry it out in every language. Make sure everyone knows. The Jews were, were to prepare for a victory, not a defeat. They were strengthened because they were backed up by the king himself. So you can't get more encouragement than this coming from, down from the royal palace. And the, the interesting thing is there's a correlation between this decree and how we understand our predicaments as human beings. There has been a decree from the Lord, the soul that sins shall die, Ezekiel 18.20. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, Hebrews 9.22. Thus, we are all under this decree, every single human being. We read in Romans that there's not one good, no, not one. So if we want to come to God with our own goodness, guess what? We're not going to make it. That's the first decree, the, the, bad, the bad news for us. There is, however, a second decree, and this message is to be written to all people in all languages 
so that everyone can have a chance to hear the gospel. Romans 10, 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the first decree is a decree of death, and the second decree is a decree of life. Praise God, he is on our side. Once again, we have the king on our side and wants to save his people. Whosoever believes, are you a whosoever? Are you walking through life prepared for victory or defeat? Which is another really big idea. Um, there, there is a, a Christian that could walk through this life with anxiety, not knowing the scripture, not knowing the decree, but the more you read the decree, you trust it, you trust who it comes from. This is not coming from an earthly king, King Ahasuerus, but this is coming from the king of the universe, a king that says he cannot lie. So how much more can we trust in that decree? So, so far we've read or we've seen Esther and the paradigm shift of the king which is correlated to the new birth, our paradigm shift. We've seen the fact of Esther identifying herself with her people, and we identify ourselves with Christ in baptism. We see that there's two decrees gone out, and at the very end, we see in verses 15 to 17, Mordecai is exalted, or glorification. <clears throat> It reads, verse 15, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown, interesting, and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And every province and in every city, wherever the king commanded and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Uh, the, uh, really, the first observation that we can, we can see here is that Mordecai, remember, the man that refused to bow to Haman, he identified himself with his people, is now at this point, and if you, if you think about it, and I think it was like chapter 2 or, or 4, do you remember what clothes he was wearing? Sackcloth. Yep. He was wearing sackcloth. This is like really itchy, fibrous clothing. It's not comfortable. It's uh, the clothing of prophets. It's a clothing of mourning. And he had tears in his eyes. He felt very um, at fault for what was happening to the Jews. And we see here, finally, at the end, Mordecai is exalted and trades his sackcloth for royal clothes, for fine linen, and, and tears for joy. This exaltation caused joy to spread to the Jews, and not only the Jews, but the Gentiles of uh, Sushan. Isn't that interesting? And in every province, in every city, wherever the king commanded and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and among the people. And the people actually identified themselves with the Jews uh, for fear. Isn't that interesting? A total reversal had occurred, and God loves to stack the odds against himself only to show himself strong. And there are so many stories 
that show that and declare that in Scripture, um, just in passing, a couple of them, the Red Sea moment, if you, if you think about that, if you recall, that uh, the Israelites' slaves, all they knew their whole lives was slavery, were pushed up against the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army charging against them. They had no chance. I mean, if you take a trained soldier against a slave that had, like, what, sticks and stones, uh, and these soldiers are riding new chariots, there's, I mean, it's pretty clear who's going to win here. And God backed them against the corner only to show himself strong. And God also, throughout Scripture, loves to show how he will have the victory and not the flesh. Those Israelites could not turn to their own strength, their own ingenuity. Nothing at that point would help them. They were coming in too fast. There was too many. The uh, enemy was too great. So they had no chance, and God loves to do that. There's another example with, if you, if you recall, uh, do you, you recall King Hezekiah? He was really in pressure by King Sennacherib where his whole, the, the whole of Jerusalem was, was uh, sieged, was surrounded by 180,000 soldiers to a point where people were actually eating their children. It was reported to the king. And they thought they had no, no chance. And uh, actually, in one night, the angel of the Lord came and killed 180,000 soldiers. And in the morning, I think it was three beggars came out, and they said, hey, you know what? Let's ask for food. If they kill us, whatever, we're starving anyway. And when I went out there, everyone was dead. And uh, the people across the walls, they didn't even believe that. They're like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? And then finally, if you recall, Gideon's 300 men. It didn't start with 300. It started with 10,000. And it whittled down to 300 against an innumerable army. They thought at 10,000, hey, we can't beat them with 10,000. This is all our great guys. We, we, we can't do it. And uh, he whittled them down to 300. By winning the victory, they just held up torches, lights, and blew the horn, surrounding the innumerable army. The army got so confused and terrified, they started killing themselves. So there was no loss of soldiers. That's how God works. He loves to put himself back, just to show himself mighty. And he loves to make us weak and weaken us so that he can work for his glory. And so that we can never point to ourselves. We will never say that the Red Sea moment happened because man was so brave or smart or strong. Or uh, with, uh, with Gideon's 300 men. It was all God. Furthermore, glorification involves our exaltation from our humble position and new robes of righteousness, of the, the righteousness of Christ and crowns are given to us. We will rejoice and never fear because we are backed up by the king who is all-powerful. Not only all-powerful, but he's intimate. He knows us. He called us. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult, exult, exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And if you uh, do a study on uh, clothing in the Bible, it's really interesting, and you can gain a lot from that. But, uh, yeah, it is said that men, we and our good works are as dirty, filthy rags before God. We have no righteousness of our own. 
because of our sins. Yet the Lord of glory steps down to earth, goes up on a cross. He lives a perfect life. He spins the robe of righteousness for us. And by our faith, he grants it to us. I mean, what an amazing gift where we are suffering down here on earth and yet one day he will exalt all of us simply because he is good and kind and rich in mercy, not because of anything we've done or our ingenuity or strength. The result of chapter 8 is in one fell swoop, Haman is destroyed, well, 7 and 8 and 9, um, along with the Jews' enemies, they were brought into the open and, destroys, and destroyed as the Jews defend themselves. And that is to say that not only was Haman killed, but later on we're going to see that the people, uh, the enemies of the Jews, whoever was remaining, stood up and they were totally cut down. So in one go, God was able to take up all the, the evil people that wanted the destruction of the Jews. I mean, what a victory. So we're kind of coming toward the end, and the question is, what can we take away from Esther 8? Well, we can see that God remains faithful to Israel under judgment. And so we have to ask ourselves, how did Israel get to Persia anyway? Do you remember? Where they once had a kingdom, and God continuously asked and and by the prophets, to turn away from idolatry. He waited, he was patient with them, and instead they did not turn away from idolatry, and they were sent into captivity under Babylon and then the Medes and the Persians. So Israel at this point in Persia, far away from their home, is an Israel in judgment. And yet, even though God promised that when he judges, he will turn his face from them, and although God is not mentioned in this book, we see that God still works providentially through the book of Esther. And he still preserves them through his judgment against them and he preserves them through uh, their enemies, the people that want to destroy them. <clears throat> Israel's symbol today is uh, the Star of David. I, I think it really should be a burning bush uh, because uh, that's really their story a bush that, that is set ablaze on judgment and is not consumed. Very interesting picture. And so what we can kind of glean from this is that God will remain faithful to complete the work he started in you. So if God can be faithful to Israel that was under judgment, he can be faithful to you and he will be faithful to his word to complete the work he started. Furthermore, we can also glean that God raises up people. Do not despise the position that God has put you in, whether your work, your status, whatever it might be, God could use you in your unique position in the time you were born. Next, God is in control and he will act when he sees fit. We can rest and trust God even in, with the injustice running about because we know God is on the throne and he has provided a rock rock of our salvation. And, and if you remember, when we looked at the world and we see that there's wars raging on and uh, all types of evil, we know that God is in control and we can rest on the rock, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And someone once said, 
I might tremble on the rock, but the rock never trembles. And so just to kind of recap, verses 1 to 2, we see a paradigm shift, a new birth. Verses 3 to 6, baptism and identity. Verses 9 to 14, two decrees, damnation and salvation. And verses 15 to 17, glorification, a Christian's hope. And that's really what we hope today. So if you could bow your heads with me. Father, we're so grateful for your word today. We long to see you. We long for the day that we will see you in your fullness, that we will see you as you are, Father. We thank you so much that um, you have sent your son to do the work on our behalf. We thank you, Father, that you are on our side. And I pray, Lord, that if someone here does not know your son, I pray that they would submit themselves and their lives to to you, Lord Father, that they would submit to the gospel, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, Father. So, Father, I pray that you would please save them, Father. I thank you so much for your word and for this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.